Hey, how's it going, Champagne Sharks? How's everybody doing? This is Trevor. You can find the show at patreon.com forward slash Champagne Sharks. Um, become a premium member, $5 a month. You get double the episodes, back episodes, uh, access to the voice and Discord chat server, and a bunch of other goodies, newsletter, and also you get access to preview our coming guests and ask them questions. So definitely do that. And if you want to send us an email, champagnesharks at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter or Instagram and those places at champagne sharks, one word. And we have with us our guest. I'll let her introduce herself by name, where you can find her and what she does and what she's about. Dope. So I'm excited to be here on the Champagne Sharks podcast. I recently started my own podcast, We Be Imagining. Um, so it's exciting to be a guest for once instead of an interviewer. Uh, my name is Jay Khadija Abdurakman. I'm a child welfare system abolitionist. Um, I run a series of programming at Columbia University's The American Assembly and the Insight Center called We Be Imagining that's about infusing academic discourse with the performance arts in partnership with community-based organizations. Um, so we have a podcast, Black Sign Radio, which is on 89.9 FM WKCR. And we also have a, basically a, <clears throat> like an incubator for experimental digital storytelling. We have a few projects through there. And I also um, teach a class on oral history methodology at Cornell Tech. That's pretty much me. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Not, not a lot of stuff going on at all. Very. <laughs> it's a yeah. little crazy. It's a little crazy, especially <laughs> like actually I've been broke like most of my adult life. So all of a sudden I had a lot of opportunities this year, which coincided with the end of childcare indefinitely, which is kind of the crazy situation to be in. What do you mean by the end of childcare indefinitely? I mean, just as far as the shelter in place order and the COVID-19 pandemic. So I have five kids. So Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. The closing of school has been a real, like, just a real situation. And so oh, they watch a lot oh, of man. TV. So I'll be on Zoom calls and there's, like, projectile objects flying between myself and the screen. It's, it's, a, little, it's a little crazy. And it's, I mean, I just don't have a lot of faith. Now, uh, New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio is saying that we're going to move full steam ahead and open schools. But... Besides the fact that Andrew Cuomo is like, nah, man, it's the governor's decision and they having their little battle. It just, you know, we still not even tested people enough. Like, it's not clear, like, that this decision to open schools is based on anything other than, like, political pivoting. Like, I'm not convinced that they've really figured out how to move forward sans vaccine. But the amount of stuff you have going on is impressive, I mean, for anybody. But I didn't know yet. I, I know you had kids. I know you had five kids. So to have that full plate that you have, like, how do you even sleep? That's that's a lot. Yeah. That, that's a lot. I'm, I'm more impressed. I'm, I was impressed before, but I'm, I'm really impressed now. Nah, thank you. I'm just motivated. I mean, everything that I'm doing, I feel like I have the privilege. You know, I'm not. it's not like I'm working for a call center and I just am forced to perform responsibilities that have been imposed onto me. Like, I'm really grateful that I have the opportunity to pursue so many projects that I'm passionate about that I've wanted to do my whole life and to have a platform for that. So I really enjoy all the things that I do. Um, that said, you know, I'm not here to be a superwoman uh, martyr mother. Like, you know, sometimes <laughs> sometimes things don't get done correctly or, you know, there's kids screaming in the background in the middle of a phone call. And, you know, we just have to, like, I think a lot of parents, you're just forcing yourself down this line. You got to figure out a way to make it happen. But do your kids have that like old school discipline where you just have to just raise one eyebrow and then they just be quiet? Or, you know, is it like they're just off, off and about? Because I remember when I was growing up, like my parents just lift an eyebrow and that was it. You just uh, stop talking. But it's, it's, it's different now. Like, well, it's different now. Plus, um, most of my kids have disabilities like ADHD or, you know, developmental delays and stuff like that. So absolutely not. 
No, they don't. I'm not just raising an eyebrow. I mean, there's a <laughs> lot of like, you know, talking to through feelings and trying to provide structured activities. Uh, there's definitely been a shift, though. There was a certain point I wish they just stopped asking to go outside. Um, I would say since we passed the apex, we really make an yeah. active effort to go like different places in the city and go outside more. But, you know, when it was real scary, we didn't know nothing. We just stopped going outside. And this is from I always kept them real active. Like they were all individually going to different schools, having different activities. And so that was a big shift. So at a certain point, though, you know, kids are real adaptable. And I think that they just got used to staying in the house. Yeah, I mean, regardless, uh, salute. Like, I mean, I know it's harder to raise kids that way where you talk things through and everything, but I think it's ultimately better, you know, like where kids talk about their feelings and talk about all that stuff. I think it's better in the old school way, but I know there's times where, you know, even if it's just for a day, you just wish you had that old school way uh, available to you. Just uh, listening, that's it. There's no need to talk about anything. I mean, the but. true secret of that old school way is that, you know, there's a certain section of kids that will comply and the other section get beat, right? And I was in the get beat section. So I was, yeah. you know, I, I grew up in the old school era and I didn't yeah. follow directions and I didn't listen. <laughs> and so what happened? You know, they pull your ear, they yell at you, but there's definitely kids that don't, that deviate from that norm. Yeah, no, but I, I prefer it. I prefer uh, the way that you're talking about. Um, before we get into the topic that I actually want to have you on about, which was the uh, foster care and the comparisons to ICE. And I also want to talk about how, you know, because there's a lot of police involvement in uh, foster care that a lot of people don't know about that in a way, I think there's a lot of overlap even with the police abolition talk, you know. Uh, but before we get into that, I think a lot of the other stuff that you're into is is pretty interesting. So uh, would you mind going into a little bit more like what kind of things you're into with podcasts that you do? Just just a range of things you do outside of uh, the child welfare stuff before we get into the, the welfare and abolition. Sure, sure. Well, it's actually, it's all connected. So, I mean, to me, my learning style um, is in part impacted. So, like I said, when I was coming up, I got into a lot of trouble. And so when I was 12 years old, I went to go live at this behavioral modification center in, um, in the state of Connecticut. And I was really just a nerd. Like, I would cut school all the time and go to museums. Like, I wasn't... Uh, like some advanced gangster or anything. I was like selling rap lyrics and writing angry letters to uh, my French teacher saying that, you know, maybe there would be a better position for her. Maybe not appreciating the fact that this was in the wake of the Columbine massacre and how that would be interpreted. So the state of New York paid $98,000 a year for me to attend this 24-7 behavior modification center. And so while I was there... Um, and just to like give people a picture of it, the majority of kids that were there were um, either in foster care, DCF, uh, District of Children and Family Services in Connecticut, or um, adopted internationally from white parents who thought that they were infertile and then later went on to have their own children and then placed the adopted child at the, the center. But it also looked like a country club. Like it looked really beautiful on the outside and had rolling green hills and there were no bars, but just there was like Christian fundamentalists and the way that they, this really extreme point system. And so <clears throat> it was just like a really alienating atmosphere. And it was like the first place that I learned that salad meant immersed in mayonnaise. Um, but the main thing was that they forbade you from reading and writing anything outside of the class. And so that experience over the course of five years of being um, excluded from accessing news, any kind of information, there were even staff members that would sneak me in books that ultimately got fired. That really inspired me to learn on my own. And so when I left the school around age 17... I'm sorry, I don't want to interrupt you, but can you expand on that? Like, um, 
why would they get fired for bringing you in books? Is it because to me, this sounds a lot like prison. Prison is it's very regimented what you can read and what you can't can't read. Yeah. So that's the whole thing. I mean, understanding prison abolition has to you have to understand the way discipline and punishment is initiated all across society. So it's not just imprisonment like in the way that we think about like in a jail facility, but also expulsion, suspension. You know, there's all these like everyday mundane practices in society that are like that are all in relationship to carcerality. So it felt very much like imprisonment, but at the same time was in a like country club kind of atmosphere. Like where we lived was called cottages. Uh, We would all sit and eat dinner together. Um, But it was a really miserable place. And it just, they try to modify your behavior through this point system. So every hour you'd have four points and you would like lose points and they would calculate percentages. Anyway, I have a letter that I actually, I want to frame on my bathroom. I sit in the back room. But it says how like, even after all of these years, I was never reformed and that I had no hope, et cetera, et cetera. Like I didn't comply with the system. You know, it's interesting about everything you described, like talk about being uh, institutionalized when people talk about prison. They talk about how some people physically are in prison, but a lot of people, if you ever talk to people who've been to prison, they always say uh, that they try not to get institutionalized, where you start making uh, being a prisoner your identity and you just get kind of used to all the rules and regimentations of prison and and uh, thinking like a prisoner where it's like you know i was in pr- in prison but i wasn't like institutionalized but what i find pretty interesting is what you describe a lot of the things the points the demerits the watching what you read and having like certain books banned or smuggling books in and eating communally and judging on how well you've been um programmed it kind of makes you realize like some people end up getting institutionalized before they even set foot into prison. Because I feel like that's kind of training you for a lot of the personality and lifestyle managements that they do to you in prison. Yeah, for sure. I mean, like a a very immediate comparison to me is a special education system. So, you know, being inside of the school, one of the other like higher order punishments besides um, losing a point or losing certain privileges was seclusion or what they called a quiet room. ProPublica actually, I think it was last year, did a really good series um, looking at how seclusion is implemented in special education public schools across the country to this day. Um, And reading that article, I was like, wow, so much hasn't changed. So when you would get in trouble, they would put you inside of this room that it looked almost like a small bathroom, but imagine there was no fixtures, like no sink, no nothing, except there was a drain at the bottom of the floor and it was like a linoleum floor. And on the ceiling would be um, a security camera and a plexiglass box. And then there would be a door, but it only had a hand on the other end. And so a staff member would watch you on a on a monitor adjacent to that room and you would be just stuck indefinitely inside of this seclusion room. And so overwhelmingly, I definitely think I stood out in terms of always questioning this system. And now it's easy for me to talk about because this is like 20 years ago, I was 12. Um, But I remember- And and, and that room sounds like solitary confinement. Yeah, no, it is solitary confinement. And unfortunately to this day, this still exists in the United States and I think other parts like Canada and other places in North America. So this still happens. And at the school had at the time, um, kids ages four, four to 21. So imagine there would be four-year-olds screaming for their parents inside of this room. And the reason it had a drain is because they don't allow you to have bathroom breaks. So people would be peeing on themselves. And then when it would be over, they would have to mop up their own pee. And these kids would be crying for their parents and have no parents, you know, have parental rights terminated and there was nobody there. Um, So it was a really horrifying experience. And um, what I wanted to say to you was that I think I definitely stood out and I felt at the time like I definitely wasn't institutionalized. And it's easy for me to talk about now, but... Thinking back to when I was 17 and I left, 
I remember like it was difficult for me to go to the bathroom without having to ask permission because I was so programmed constantly. Like you would automatically be in what they called a training setting, which was you weren't allowed to speak for at least 24 to 48 hours until you got off of the setting and have to be on one-to-one supervision if you went to the bathroom without asking because you had to be in sight of a staff member at all times. And so there's little things like that that just, you don't even become aware though because you're so used to living that life. I think something that gives you a pretty uh, unique viewpoint because I was watching like a lot of YouTube videos and reading stuff that you wrote. It's uh, I feel like there's a lot of divide that happens because I read a lot of academic papers and stuff like that or watch people in academia and they kind of have a jargon and a way of thinking and being that I think comes from the fact a lot of them might have. And I don't say this like in a judgmental way, but maybe like a kind of sheltered uh, background or they're coming at it. You know, even if they're of color, they might be coming at it from, you know, a very different um, privileged place, whereas some people might have a lot of um, common sense or street smarts or whatever, but they don't really have like that language of academia or that type of uh, access to those networks. I feel like there's this kind of missing intersection where, you know, some people have the platforms and the language or whatever, but they don't really have like the firsthand empathy or, or experience on the other side. But And then other people who are activists who kind of uh, come from the places that they're working in, but they don't really connect with a lot of the people who come from the academic side. And I found what was interesting was you... Uh, seem to be kind of well-versed in both sides of, of the issues. You know what I mean? Like, like in, like, as in you're in a place where you can kind of empathize with a lot of the stuff firsthand that you're dealing with. Well, thank you. I really, that's definitely one of my goals. And I mean, my response is twofold. It's one that there are some actually incredible people in the academy. However, the academy ultimately is an engine for settler colonialism. So what type of discourse gets incentivized? What is allowed to be brought to the top? Like, to think, you know, it wasn't just books that were considered contraband. It was also knives and weapons at the at, at this residential center that I was in, right? So why are books, why is writing on your own considered to be contraband, considered to be a weapon? It's because ideas that, you know, catalyze resistance against the dominant, like, hegemonic force, you know, are dangerous and are considered to be weapons by those who are in power. So it's not surprising to me that a lot of academics that are questioning the way that things are and are providing, like, really radical ideas often get pushed out. And the second thing is that when I left these schools is I ended up like sensibly, like a couple months later, joining the Revolutionary Communist Party, which had a lot of problems. But one of the things that Mao specifically addressed was what he called the mental manual divide, like the difference between those who work with their minds and those who work with their hands. And so while there was a lot, of, there's a lot of problematic things about Marxist Leninist parties or Ma- Maoist Leninist Marxist parties is that, um, you know, I think that divide is really critical. And, you know, Gramsci talked about organic intellectuals. And I really believe that anybody could be about working with other ideas and anybody could be an intellectual. And just for me at the end of the day, like my research focus, I tell people is predictive analytics in the child welfare system. And that is that jargon heavy, like a little bit, but really why am I interested in that is because I understand how child welfare operates as a family regulation system. And it can manifest itself as literally kids in cages thinking about like uh, the immigration and customs enforcement and how Trump separated kids at the border, but also can take on all these other forms and in, in, in particularly like New York City, even though the foster care census 
um, has decreased since its height in 1996. And there's a little less than 8,000, I believe, to this day um, in the custody of the city. You have over 45,000 enrolled in preventative services where the data of them and their families is constantly being collected. So this could look all different types of ways. And why why am I interested in this predictive analytics and child welfare? Because I want to understand how they're calculating whose kids should be removed or not removed. And why are there certain neighborhoods that are being decimated with higher rates of child welfare investigations and rates of arrest by the police? And why is this so hidden to people? So for me, like, I love reading, but it really all it comes down to is like, how can we get our people free? And the big data stuff is really scary because we live in this kind of era of scientism where people just think a computer can be neutral. Like, you know, uh, but computers are just as good as the programming that went into them. But there's a certain type of deference where people think once a thing is scientific, it's like in- infallible or it's um, objective, like, like the bias has been taken out. And uh, I mean, I don't know as far as the objections you find to your work particularly, but I just know in, in general, when I hear people say um, this was done by science or science says, a lot of times their questioning gets checked out at the door. They're just like, yeah, you're taking the human element out of this because it's it's a program, but there's still a human element into that because somebody has to put the programming into the computer and someone has to interpret or make final judgments on what the um, computer spits out. And there's a whole bunch of problems with big data and predictive analytics in, as far as race goes, uh, whether it's facial recognition, whether it's how uh, it contextualizes data. Yeah, for real. I mean, it's it's really difficult. This is precisely what you said, is that, you know, the argument that like the neoliberals use in the face of austerity politics is that we're removing human bias by relying on big data and automated decision making systems. Uh, where it's just the technology is just telling us like who's most at risk rather than, you know, a human being determining which families should or should not have their kids. But at the same time, it's like as old as this country. Like where 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 do biometric surveillances like get the attributes that they're that they're inputting into that data? Like they get it from the same things we were looking when people were docking off slave ships. They're using like they're relying on phrenology. They're relying on like race biology, like long defunct, uh, debunked like pseudoscience. But it's funny because even the old pseudoscience is still stubborn because I mean there's still people trying in like surprisingly high places like openly trying to um, still push the bell curve, you know, and that's been addressed like so many times. So, you know, this new stuff is particularly probably um, unchallenged. If, if you can't even get rid of the old the old notions that have been addressed over and over again, I can just imagine what kind of uh, deference or uncritical acceptance of new stuff that sounds even fancier and more technical that people are. Cause, because people are, a lot of people are scientifically uh, illiterate. If it just sounds good and it confirms a lot of their pre-existing notions, they check their brains out at the door, I, I find. Yeah, I mean, I think it's complicated because there's a lack of critical thinking on one hand. And then there's the fact that we have like clearly like a huge base of support for white supremacy in this country. So they're not necessarily even interested in fact checking, even if they were scientifically minded. But I think the hard part is that, you know, the movements and even within academia, like different disciplines are siloed. So, you know, within the data policy tech community, the issue is like the lack of representation among um, groups who are most profoundly affected by facial recognition or other surveillance surveillance technologies, and also siloed from like the prison abolitionist movement. So like within tech, like very commonly people who are um, making the critiques and like think tanks that are making the critiques are funded by the big tech companies that they're critiquing. Whereas like 
wouldn't find Angela Davis or Miriam Kaba or a lot of these prison abolitionists if they were taking NYPD money, that would be called out immediately. So I feel like part of the problem is that there's not more collision and like dialogue between these different groups, both like academically in terms of the conversation that's happening around prison versus the conversation that's happening around tech, but also in terms of the activist movements that a lot of us, you know, we don't talk to each other. So there's not like the correcting on both sides. I want to talk about like the substance of what you do and everything but i can't lie i'm really interested in your actual story because it's it's, it's a pretty because you keep dropping other things that are just really interesting like being into uh maoism and things like that like like how how did you end up uh what was your political journey to end up um in this field and what you're doing and at this intersection like like before we even get into the substance of what you do because um yeah, I'm, I want to know how you went from getting out and having what you're um, looking at, like just so screened and, you know, having to ask how to go to the bathroom. All, I mean, when you can go to the bathroom and all that to uh, getting into Maoism, Marxist, Leninism, like um, how your political education ended up happening. If it all started after you left, if the people who brought you in the books got you started on this path. No, nah, honestly, when I think about the books that they were bringing me, I was really into writing poetry, um, even though we weren't supposed to be writing. So when I think back to it, I feel like the books were probably something about like slam poetry or something like that as far as the school. But literally, I mean, I'm just like a curious person. So at some point I took the F train and got off on 23rd Street and 6th Avenue. Um, and this would have been like 2005. And I remember getting off the train and I'm walking south on 6th Avenue by where like, um, what is it? Best Buy is over there or something on that corner. And um, there was a big anti-war protest against the George Bush regime. And so I'm like looking at that, trying to see what it's up. And I keep walking. And so at that time, Revolution Books was on 19th Street between 5th and 6th Avenue. I go in there. I picked up a book by Raymond Lada, a member of the party called Notes on Political Economy, um, which like looking back, like that book was problematic too. But at the same time, I'm coming from, you know, really limited formal education, all of a sudden learning about like Marxist historical materialism. And then, you know, they already had like some structure in there. So I ended up coming back to the bookstore and they had a, um, what did they call it? RCYB, something like that. Re Revolutionary Communist Youth Brigade. So I ended up joining that. I volunteered at the bookstore and... You know, like, they have kind of a cult of personality around this dude, Bob Avakian, and, you know, there's a lot of crazy stuff about them, but they had a really positive impact on my political education because coming from this lack of formal education, all of a sudden I'm in charge of I could help develop public programming for the bookstore, and I'm meeting the UK ambassador to Uzbekistan who wrote a book um, about how the US and other countries were using Uzbekistan as a torture site and, like, boiling people alive and helping to organize a protest from 125th Street to New Orleans, um, going the path of the Freedom Riders one year after Hurricane Katrina, sitting in the Superdome, seeing when the levees break with the people um, who were featured in the movie as like Spike Lee is re re uh, releasing it. And so I feel like I had a profoundly like in-depth political education because it was always about, you know, reading and studying and learning, but also how that connected to what was actively happening in the world. Um, yeah, as soon as you say revolutionary books, uh, a lot of things click because, yeah, yeah, revolutionary books, I think it's in uh, Harlem now, but it's it's still... Um, I know it's still around and there used to be a lot of good bookstores like that in New York and a lot of them have kind of closed down like like radical bookstores. These be even less common now than radical bookstores are black bookstores. Like black bookstores I think have really been uh decimated. And what you said I thought was pretty interesting. We talked about how what got you into 
being politically awakened is kind of considered problematic now. But I kind of miss those days where you could be into something problematic and people just didn't throw out the baby with the bathwater. You can kind of like start somewhere. It's not perfect, but it has some good things in it. And then you can evolve past it. And now we're in this kind of, I don't want to say cancel culture because I hate that that phrase, but but there is this kind of... uh, purity testing I notice a lot now where people want things to be devoid of as many problematic things as possible before it can even be um, discussed. Like, I didn't really get politically awakened by left-wing bookstores, but I remember like in the 90s, I used to go to a lot of uh, black bookstores and there would be like 5% or stuff, uh, Soul on Ice by Eldridge Cleaver and some other things where, you know, if you look at it now, it's like, okay, there's a lot of problematic stuff in that, but it still caused like, a curiosity and a questioning that led me to other places and i i feel like we don't really have much of that anymore it's, it's very it's very tough to tell people you read anything problematic yeah i mean i feel like this is a hard time to be alive i mean we're really hemmed in on all sides and you know to me i think like part of my read of the so-called cancel culture is that when I say problematic, like what am I thinking about is that the RCP was right on some very specific things. So one is that they helped initiate like a few grassroots movements. One of them was October 22nd Coalition Against Police Brutality. And they spoke very effectively about um, like racial capitalism and like how that had to do with the police brutality and the state sanctions like murder. Uh, But they... They really didn't, you know, there's a huge problem with dogmatism in the communist tradition. And while they did talk to us a lot about epistemology and ways of knowing the world and like, you know, how the enlightenment was really powerful in rejecting like uh, like a, re- a sense of religious faith that didn't require any interrogation, how we should also think about the beauty of like myth and awe and wonder and like how Lenin and Stalin didn't really get that. At the end of the day, they weren't really able to speak to some of the questions that were being raised at the time. And this is like early aughts, right? Like 2005, 2006, 2007, um, about, you know, the economic determinism within Marxism. And like, what about like, not just race in terms of like, who's historically been excluded, but like these other ways of knowing and understanding the world and about feminine, like they weren't really able to speak to that. And so I think like, identity politics really dominated that conversation. And then once you get identity politics, and you lose like, the political economy and the historical materialism, then it becomes this purity test. And the purity test is also like based on your identity. Like I feel like there's all these conversations right now and this isn't even an issue in tech where it's like let's center black women. I'm all about citing black women. I But are we not going to talk about class? Like if, if we center Condoleezza Rice, is that like in the interest of the revolution just because she's a black woman? So I feel like that's part of the part of the problem. But yeah, I hold all my bad takes. I also had a Marcus. I think before I met the Revolutionary Communist Party, I used to go to 125th Street and pick up um, mixtapes. And like the same thing, like you said, the book table. Yeah, I think you would like, kind of overlap with the same generation because they got them all off 125th Street. But I used to go up there too. And uh, the, the tables with the mixtapes, the... I discovered I discovered uh, Last Poets on 125th Street because uh, they would sell the vinyl, Last Poets. I'm like, what is this? But it was a good time because you could find some really interesting stuff. Like, the few black bookstores I find now, they don't have as interesting stuff as you used to find back then. Like, all the problematic stuff is, like, purged. So just, like, Tom Joyner books and, and Steve Harvey and, and those, like, crime literature stuff that they have now. Like, you know, you know that hood lit that they have now? It's like they have all the black books of Barnes and Noble, but just in a black bookstore. Whereas before, you would find like some kind of weird, weird stuff. I'm sorry, I got, I cut you off. I just got excited about hearing 125th 
buying mixtapes. No, nah, but I think that's all relevant, right? Because like, look how 125th changed. You know, look how the whole bookstore situation changed. 125th Street now has like Michaels or Red Lobsters, like, you know, yeah. and that, that's part of the situation. So I think, you know, the thing that I am very excited about, you know, I, I really I'm not excited about the fact that there is a pandemic and people are dying and suffering due to COVID-19. However, I think one of the silver linings of the situation is that, you know, a lot of my friends that are in Harlem or in Brooklyn have commented on there's way less Karens, you know, jogging around. And you just see like when I go to the protests. You see all this moving stuff. I went to one protest in 42nd Street and I'm like, I seen this lady actively moving while there was like cops running after people, people protesting, stuff on fire. It just felt like the first scene in The Watchmen. And I'm like, rents are going to drop. And so I feel like some of that old flavor of New York is coming back. And I think that I think you might see some of those more of those books outside. Like, I think there's going to have to be more of an informal economy. That will bring like a lot of economic precarity for people. But I think, you know, some of the plus side might be that you see more of this like circulation and curation of just like everyday people bringing their stuff outside. Yeah, because I remember when it, the first thing they did when they took them all off 125th, they put them in that lot on 116th Street and just herded mm-hmm. them into just this this lot on 116th Street. So you had to go to this kind of the Malcolm X Shabazz Bazaar. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Which it wasn't quite the same as like it being on the street in the mix. You know, um, you can go to like George's Donuts, and on the way to George's Donuts, there's like you stumble across like a a table with something interesting. Like that was like the first change under. I remember it was on, under Giuliani. I think that happened. But yeah, I mean, I know what you're saying, but the flavor of New York, it, it's not it's not the same. It's really different. It's just. But I see but, more graffiti popping up now. You can sell liquor yeah. to go. I feel like we're gonna see a lot of different. I'm I'm a little optimistic for something. I think we're gonna That's see good. a little more old New York coming back. Yeah, the the one the one thing I really like going on is I feel like there's kind of a rising like radical thought too, even if it's on the internet and whatever. It's it's I, I like that, but this is this is the one this is the one thing that worry about is bad like neoliberal reading lists, like the proliferation of those all over the media where people are just like, uh, so you want to be a good ally? Here's some stuff you can read, and then you look at it and it's like, um, it's stuff you can read and watch. It's like watch Dear White People on Netflix. It's like no, come on, like this is probably one of the most revolutionary moments we've had in a long time. People talking about abolishing the police and all this stuff and you're going to talk about I'm not saying that the shows are good or bad but this is not the kind of uh, political education that uh people need and that's kind of getting on my nerves like a lot of people with platforms including like uh black and brown people with platforms just pushing like some of the most tepid anti-racism or quote-unquote woke books you can you can imagine and that's that's the one thing I'm, I'm worried about like telling people to watch hamilton telling people to uh read white fragility etc et or Atlanta. My favorite was in Atlanta, them pulling out T.I. and Killer Mike, who was telling the people to mm. calm down, and Killer Mike talking about his cop family. It's just so funny. I mean, I still feel optimistic because honestly, like the right, the left, the neoliberals, everything that's happening outside is so raw. I mean, I can only speak to my yeah. experience living in New York City and like attending protests, going to Occupy City Hall, but everything is so raw. This has really outstripped the capacity of any of these formal organizations to really filter and channel it into whatever their prescribed agenda is, 
Like, do I think people watching Dear White People could, like, de-escalate, is attempting to de-escalate the situation? Yeah, but I think that people have no idea what's going on there if you're not if you're not already there. I, you know, my fear is that it's just so fragmented and the, the period of time, for example, that has elapsed from Occupy Wall Street to Occupy City Hall that, you know, these this is not the same generation. So they haven't had the ability to accumulate the type of experience that you need to go up against the state and to go up against the forces that they're that they're like interacting with um are we allowed to curse yeah. on here do you curse on your podcast? oh yeah 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 we, we can also the on one here. thing i was gonna say i feel like the new generation got is that the biggest rallying cry has been um nypd suck my dick and this is very brilliant for two reasons is number one is like they are really aware i feel like this generation is very aware about how the aesthetic of resistance gets commodified and like Amazon might say we are in solidarity with black lives, blah, blah, blah. Amazon is not going to say we too want NYPD to suck our dick. It's not going to say that. I just feel like that's so brilliant. And I've heard that like across multiple boroughs. Super brilliant. The second point yeah, is I, that. Yeah, talk, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, 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 no, no. I was, I was going to agree with you as as well. Like um, by making it like that. Th- that's why I like things like abolish the police and stuff like that because you kind of see who's on the fence and not because you saw all these liberals and neoliberal people and supposedly democrats like do we really want to say abolish isn't that kind of strong and it's like that's the point like like you come in to a negotiation asking for the most and then get maybe talked down but but you don't come in trying to be conciliatory like from the from the beginning and i thought same as what you said it was a good it was a good uh filter you start seeing people from like Vox and New York Times and whatever who kind of cosplay as like, you know, woke or whatever is suddenly, you know, being squeamish at words like abolition and stuff, you know? Yeah, I think that's I think that's a valid point, but I think it's important to remember how much isn't even encompassed or reflected by those various institutions. Like to yep. me, one of the most telling things has been how Twitter you know, up until like, I would say even up until like the last couple of weeks has really been the best source of news to see what is going on like real time in the streets. And like when I was seeing the different reporting around the protests, especially in the beginning, under every like great picture or video, you would see your Associated Press. Like, can I do I have permission to use your footage? Why? They're not there. Right. They're not yep. even in the middle of it. And then you have protesters who were refusing to speak to the media because they're like, you keep framing us as uh, looters. Um, and you're not really taking the time to cover our demands. Like even I went to Occupy City Hall like two, three days ago and they were like, where's the media? Like nobody is really covering this. Um, and, if, and if they do go, they look for the one person who has a, a megaphone, but hasn't been appointed or organized anything. Who's there talking about we got to hug the cops. You know, they'll find that person and then make a propaganda piece around it. Put some like incredible Hulk, like piano beats on it, like ding, 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 ding. You know, like the person's like hugging a cop. Like, so even when they do show up, they're still gonna mess up. Uh, because I've seen them show up and then, like, I was at a protest by the 88 precinct and then New York One came to me and they were like, yeah, so you know, how did you feel about the cops kneeling with the protesters? And I was like, you know, they had played, they had like a couple years to like kneel when Kaepernick was kneeling. Like, why are they kneeling after? People try to storm the precinct a couple of days in a row. Like, uh, like, what does it even mean? What does it even mean now to kneel when now the whole act of kneeling has been kind of sullied by the image of a cop kneeling on George Floyd's neck for nine minutes? It's not even they had a chance to do this gesture uh, when it meant something, and they spent years, you know, not doing it, and now and now they're doing it, it doesn't really mean anything. But I, I was also like, all they did was talk about we're here to listen, we're here to listen. But you guys are the cops, you're the politicians. You should be telling us. What you're willing to do, you know, like 
you don't need to, us to hear anything. It's soon as I said that, I saw like her eyes glaze over, and I'm like, okay, she's not gonna say any of this. This is not gonna end up uh, any like she was already looking past me, looking for someone else to talk to. You know, <laughs> like she tuned, she was basically tuning out. Yeah, but I think you know, I feel like you and me might be around the same age, and so I'm a deeply cynical person. You know, and I. You know, despite all my optimism, I don't necessarily see this all going in our favor. But at the same time, like, I think it's important that we give more space to, like, the possibilities of what the youth is trying to figure out right now than our own cynicism. Like, yeah, of course, like, agents of the state, like, they go and keep doing what they're doing. Like, a lot of these bourgeois media institutions, they not, like... I was looking up all the people who with whose these bylines were from um, Los Angeles Times and uh, New York Times talking about the protesters as looters. And, you know, like you just look like they from Harvard, they're from Princeton, they're from CUNY. Uh, no, sorry, not CUNY grad. Um, they're from Columbia School of Journalism. They're like so disconnected from the situation. But what makes me really hopeful is like. When I go to these protests, I feel like it's really raw. I feel like people, there's a lot of like contesting like ideologies, like people, everything from like complete abolition, like we should have like a revolution, take over the means of production to like, we need better training for cops, right? I'm not saying like it's all radical, but people are like out there trying to figure it out and, you know, fuck these media things. And they're making new Instagrams and they're figuring out ways to communicate. And they, they got people projectors. people are entertaining the radical stuff big time in ways I've never seen before just four years ago. Like 2014, 2016 feels like so long ago in terms of how the tenor has changed and how much more radical the language has come. I mean, I don't want to sound like I'm 100% cynical. Like I've seen such a quantum shift that this course from the first go around of the Black Lives Matter movement to now uh, that... Like, like before, a lot of the protests, a lot of them had the feeling of like, uh, I call it the white ally industrial complex. It was just people just kind of showing up and it was a giant prayer circle. Whereas now, even like the white people are turning up, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely very encouraging. And I don't want to sound like a hundred percent, uh, sourpuss for sure. No, I mean, I'm, I, with you. I'm like 50% pessimistic, you know, I, we got to hold both. I'm with, I'm with you on yeah, both. I, I feel like I cut you off on something, though. You were saying uh, after the language being more radical, you were saying that there was something else that you were... No, I'm just by. saying, like, these media institutions, are they co- not covering the story? Like, all of that stuff is true. But I think it's important also to highlight that, you know, they put together Occupy City Hall so fast. And clearly somebody consulted some of the people that organized Occupy Wall Street. And, like, that gives me hope. Like, they're a little disorganized. And there's a lot of stuff going on. But they over there actively trying to hash it out. And they're communicating over all these different, like, decentralized Instagram channels and, you know, look how they're getting the word and also like providing people with masks, like organizing their own medical care, like setting up infrastructure. There was a book like, I don't know, bookstore is not the right word, but some kind of revolutionary book library within the Occupy City Hall thing. And so, you know, I, th- I think it remains to be seen. I-, I have some hope. Yeah, no, I do. I do, too. And the last thing I'll ask you before we get into like the actual content of your uh child welfare abolition work uh how do you feel about the whole leaderlessness thing because i'm i'm a little split on it i feel like it gives a lot of flexibility for things to happen and i and i think it one good thing about it is as long as it kind of remains leaderless it's um it's harder to get demoralized because if something happens to one figure or something it's not like the whole thing where strike the shepherd and all the sheep scatter, you know, but I also worry that it might have some limitations when it's time to actually stop making agendas and go beyond 
the protesting. So I wanted to ask how you feel about. I also think it makes it easier for like outside accommodators to come in, or like you know people who want to be camera hogs or de-escalators to come in and make themselves the face of it. Like you, you see those people who keep showing up to protest, and they're like influencers and stuff. When you look them up, and they just kind of showed up to become like uh, hopefully to be the next D-Ray or something. They think it's a way to boost their boost their career. So like, yeah, I want to get your take on the whole whole leaderlessness thing and the pros and cons of it in your eyes. Yeah, I mean, I'm with you. I think there's a couple of layers. I think politically, you know, some of the decentralization is summing up, you know, what happened in the 60s and 70s and even into the 80s. Like one of the biggest things with the Communist Party, the Black Panther Party was infiltration by the police. Um, and this was also like like Naomi Marikawa has a great book, The First Civil Right, How Liberals Built Prison America. And so part of the thing that she points out is like, we could focus on all this high-tech surveillance, but at the end of the day, it's like, um, not Boys and Girls Club, what are the cops called? The Police Athletic League, stuff like that. Yeah. You know, it's through this that they recruit like this huge network of informants. And it's really informants um, who are the bedrock of surveillance, even more than the like physical infrastructure of the surveillance apparatus. And so... You know, all, all to say, I think that it's a long road. I don't. I think like intellectually, postmodernism has a huge affinity for decentralization and diffusion. You look at a lot of this in like Deleuze, like societies to control, like the virality of revolution and resistance, and these flows of capital, flows of people. But I think like the truth is more nuanced, and then like the, it's, it changes. It's a complex, dynamic situation. I think specifically right now, evaluating this movement. Um, the decentralization has clearly been a plus in terms of the numbers that they've been able to get out there, the lack of predictability. But on the other hand, like, I do think you need leadership. I don't know what the right way to go about it is so that you could, like, unfortunately, I think it's going to take time because you have to build up trust and relationships in order to enact any kind of, like, real good leadership. It's almost like having a family because you can't just have one person. You can't have just one person, not just complete infiltration, but, like, what was the problem with Elders Cleaver? He was also being his wife. So, like, you need to question the people who are in power. But, yeah, I do worry without the leadership. There was a Black Panther uh, anarchist. Unfortunately, I cannot remember his name. He, he's an anarchist. He's still he's still active. Um, I have it written down somewhere. But I was reading an interview with him. And what he was kind of interesting where he was like, we had leadership, but we didn't have um, ways to make the leadership accountable, like a democratic type of system or a way to kind of uh, impeach leadership or take him down. So it was like when Eldridge Cleaver kind of went on his own thing without giving accountability to the rest of the members or when uh Huey Newton because uh, he was saying he was trying to be nice about it but it was like Huey Newton was very um charismatic and motivated and whatever but he also had a little bit of maybe in retrospect maybe bipolar uh he was doing a lot of coke at certain times and getting very paranoid and he said they realized they had no structure to um vote remove him of office and stuff like that and I think that's probably but that stuff is kind of like the boring part, I think, of revolution activism, like making bylaws, sitting around and uh, making parliamentary processes and stuff like that. It's not really the sexy stuff. It's not really the fun stuff. It's not really. Um, but I think that's probably what's going to be needed with the eventual leadership, in addition to how to pick them, how to remove them, how to punish them, how to uh, make them accountable to people. Well, two things. One, as I have somewhat of a tangent, but like one week into. Oh, 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 that's welcome. Go ahead. One week into messing with the Revolutionary Communist Party, they had this whole theory that, you know, in order to polarize America for revolution, that you have to, like, centralize a lot of focus among intellectuals. So we go on to the Columbia campus, 
And we see, you know, they have all these events. And then we're like, oh, Bobby Sill is coming to the campus. I'm so excited. You know, I'm like a teenager. I'm like, oh, I'm going to see a real member of the Black Panther Party, like Bobby Sill. We get there. This motherfucker was revealing his hot sauce, Bobby Sill's hot sauce. It was such a like, it was like, what? You know, like, here I am. I'm kind of naive. I'm like one of the heroes. And I'm like, hot sauce, my dude, hot sauce. Like, this is what you're doing? I saw him him on a food travel show uh, talking about his hot sauce. And yeah, so yeah, I totally know what you mean. Yeah, it hurts. Like you can intellectually know all this stuff, and that just hurts. Um, but on the second part, like I think I hear what you're saying about it's like mundane and it's boring. This concept of bylaws, but I think at the end of the day, like the reason why I bring up the Eldridge Cleaver example is that for all of my anti-identity politic, like I do think that you have to think about how like women operate. And so a lot of the critique from particularly black women has not just been like, you know, we're marginalized voices, et cetera, et cetera. But also like what is there, what is different in that way of understanding the world? Like this idea of centralized leadership can often be very phallic and that there's this key juncture where some man like inserts himself in, right? And has like this is the moment when everything changes. And a lot of it is much is much slower and much more like an ovum and just like developing over time. And I think that the decentralization is problematic for all the reasons that we discussed, but I think people have to figure it out. Like to me, the big thing that's missing right now is that all these people who are marching together and then they're going to go meet and then they hear people talking at them. They're not speaking to each other. So there's no yeah. like activity structure to develop those type of relationships. Like you have to be living together, fighting these things out, like learning who you can trust and who you cannot trust. Um, even astronauts. I read this whole thing about how there's this dude who takes them to like Arctic um, like uh, adventures and stuff to train them and will get them lost because when you're like six days out and now you figure out like who poured out the water because they didn't want to carry the pack that was so heavy and you don't know which way to go, that's when you figure out who you could trust or not trust. And that's when you really do like team building. And so I think it's, you know, the moment right now, it's young. So we have to see how it evolves and develops. I I agree. Um, last thing I'll say, I, f- I found the name of, of the guy. It's Lorenzo Camboa Irvin that was talking about that. In case anybody wants to look up to talk about how they couldn't take anybody out of power when they kind of went off the rails. Um, so th- that's what that was. But um, yeah, let's talk. A- Sorry, you going to say something? No, I was just saying dope. I'll check that out. I don't know that. Yeah. So I found you because... Uh, Jaya put us into uh, contact, but I remember I was talking to um, Jaya, and at the time, because you were supposed to come on for a while ago, and it just didn't work out, but um, at the time, there was a lot of stuff going on with ICE, and I saw all these people, like, protesting, like, this is not what America's about, you know, kids in cages, people just separated from the parents at the slightest pretext, and stuff like that, and... I was like, what are these people talking about? This has been America for like decades, you know, it's just been to like its own citizens, you know, like, like, and I find this weird kind of hypocrisy where when I would say this, people would think that I was kind of excusing what was happening with ICE, but I'm like, no, I'm not saying that what's happening with ICE is not bad, is not worth protesting, but I'm like, why are people so comfortable with the foster care system doing a lot of the same stuff to black and Hispanic kids in in America, especially in uh, New York, and there was an article in the Times a few years ago called uh, "The New Jane Crow" that I thought was pretty uh, good on the subject, but it made no noise. Nobody, you know, sometimes something appears in the Times and it ends up becoming, even if it's in a trendy way, like a like a talking point or a cause for a while. But like anytime it gets brought up, people kind of shift it under the table. And Jaya was like, "Oh, we should talk to my friend Khadija. She actually works, um, 
in that in that field. And then you actually had an article that actually was titled exactly what I was talking to her about, where NYC Administration of Children's Services is domestic uh, ICE. ICE, and I want to kind of talk to you about that. If you can just kind of tell us about, and, and you use use the term new, "new Jane Crow" in that one as well. But if you can just talk about uh, that article and and your work in relation to what the article talks about. Yeah, for sure. So there's a few different things there. So like you said, um, you know, it's really difficult as somebody who spends a lot of time thinking about domestic child um, welfare systems to see the outrage of so many people, including, ironically, administrators at the New York City Administration of Children's Services or ACS being outraged about separation of children at the border and that that hope that that outrage didn't generalize to the situation that happens here on a daily basis. I mean, 85,000 kids were investigated by Children's Services in New York City in last year, right? And so, like, where is all that outrage? Because this very same decimation of families is happening in a community near you. Um, and so there's, like, a couple different things there. There's one that, in the same way that people like prison culture slash Miriam Kaba have talked about the origins of policing in this country being slave patrols, the origins of child welfare are right there at the auction block. They're right there in indigenous children being sent to residential centers. Um, it is a tool for, for genocide. And actually, Kurt Mundorf, who was, uh, he was a former ACS uh, caseworker in the, I want to say it was the early 2000s or 1990s, but he wrote one of the best pieces on child welfare that I've ever read because he later went on to um, Cardozo Law School. I think, what is it called? Um, Invoking the 13th Amendment to reform child welfare. And he, he, I thought they killed him because I was like, this is the best thing I've read. I ain't never read anything like this. Um, and then I didn't hear from him for mad long. I'm like, what happened to this dude? I tracked him down and he ended up getting his PhD and his dissertation is around the Geneva Convention and how the systematic removal of children is a tool of genocide. And the craziest thing that he said to me, like informally in the conversation was like, it was such a relief to work in genocide law because at least people agree that it's wrong. And that gets to the question that you raised, like, why are more people talking about this? And, you know, I think there's a there's a range of theories. Like there's some conspiracy theories are true and there's like a lot of power and money involved in these systems. And the independent monitor, for example, that was assigned um, to evaluate New York City ACS um, following a lawsuit by then public advocate Letitia James and A Better Childhood um, was Kroll. And I don't know if you remember Kroll, but Kroll is a global auditing, uh, global investigative firm that was hired by Harvey Weinstein to intimidate his accusers, just to give oh, wow. you a sense of the level of power plays that happen in this world. But a lot of it has to do with the unsympathetic victim. So people talk about racial disproportionality in child welfare, but New York City is actually notable in that it's almost exclusively black. There's so few white children in New York City foster care or that even get involved through investigation with child welfare that when you look at the data sets that they publicized due to local law 11, there's asterisks in the columns um, that are categorized by white. Because if it's under 11 people, it's no longer anonymized data. So they have to put an asterisk. <laughs> they can't say the exact number because then you'd be able to track those people down. So unsympathetic victim, like, you know, the world really doesn't care about black women. And then it's this idea, are like black women really capable of raising their children? Um, and, you know, maybe these people have substance abuse issues. The predominant allegation that is made is neglect, which is really a word for poverty. Like, you know, did the kid have enough food? Do they have enough clothes? And so do we really love poor black women? And do we really see this as something that should be covered in the same way as like police brutality? Like, 
maybe it's keeping children safe to keep these families under this level of monitoring and surveillance. To me, that's like a bedrock thing that has to be addressed um, in this country and even within like how we said the black left, like the black abolitionist movement. Um, Cause this is long, but even when we, even in slavery studies, you know, a lot is focused on the man on the plantation, but not necessarily everything that happened to everyone else. Um, on the carceral continuum, as Carla Shedd, who is a sociologist at CUNY grad and wrote the book Unequal City, you know, it's expansive. You know, now we know more like school to prison pipeline, but it's not just that. It's the daycares, it's the group homes, it's the residential centers, the mental health facilities. The carceral continuum is long. Yeah, you know, it's it's um interesting because it's like, I know you mentioned like uh, black women and the men in the plantation, but I mean, I feel like, it's, I feel like, I feel like what's happening in general is kind of something against blackness in, in in general, because I think the idea of complete black familial units just kind of frowned against, like, I feel like the, the black man is frowned upon in his own way in the system, just based how, like, boys are treated or how it kind of works to, for, I mean, the whole welfare system, the way it kind of incentivizes not having a man, a man in the, in the home, like... Like I do, I do agree with you about um, a lot of it comes from a not caring of about black women or having particular things against black women. But I feel like it's like like um we had Frank Wilderson on the show once, and I know different people feel different ways about um, Afro pessimism. Some people like it, some people don't. But I know like one of the things he kind of talks about is how like just black as a class, there's a certain comfort expectation of black people being on on the bottom so it doesn't kind of seem like a like a cosmic wrong to see black people on the bottom it's kind of like that's their default position and everything else is kind of like like a bonus but when somebody not black is approaching the treatment or the status of a black person something kind of goes off you know i didn't really phrase that question very well I apologize, but uh, but it, 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 I guess I guess I guess I guess what I'm saying is I I agree with you, but I, but part of me wonders if there's something bigger than black men or black women in terms of just the whole class. I mean, I I get pessimistic about it sometimes. No pun intended, because we're talking about Afro pessimism. But I just feel like uh, people are just very comfortable with the idea of black people being treated a certain way. Like it's it's sad. I'm sympathetic about it, but those people are kind of used to it or. They were slaves before. This is still a step up. It's, you know, they were n- not human at all not too long ago. You know, whereas there's a degree to which immigrants who are higher up on the so-called white scale, there's a sense of you're really robbing them of, of a humanity that, that is inherent to them. Yeah, I hear you. I mean, I, I, I so it's like two different things. When I'm, when I'm making this distinction between black men and black women, I'm not trying to minimize the level of like dehumanization or like suffering that black men experience or have some kind of like oppression Olympics. Like what I'm referring to is that, you know, people might feel like, um, like white people or liberal people or, you know, whatever. In general, people might feel that, oh, it's like expected that black men are like disproportionately incarcerated and like placed into cages and what do they expect and et cetera, et cetera. But at least that system is made legible. And so when I'm talking about this like over $2 billion budget of just the New York City Administration Children's Services alone, most people are just like unaware of how the system operates and like what it is and how it impacts people's lives to even be mad about it. And people who are like really studying incarceration or policing 
or poverty, right? And a lot of how um, child welfare enacts this particular form of surveillance and policing and like separation of families is in the language of care. And so it's a little bit of a different distinction than imprisonment. In terms of like my response to Afro-pessimism, I guess like I think again to Miriam Kaba of like the idea that hope is a discipline. And so in understanding and like researching and reading all of this stuff about like how child welfare has operated from like slavery to the present, you know, I have to be careful sometimes in how I relay this information because there's a whole group of people for whom like when you're looking at this data as a heat map, you'll see like Brownsville fire red. Up east side, zero, right? And so there's a whole group of people for whom they're just like wholly unaware that this exists. And then there's another group of people for whom they're very much aware that this exists, but don't necessarily see all these interlocking pieces. And they'll get very depressed when I relay this information. And so something I always emphasize is in studying all of this from, like I said, slavery to the present, what's amazing to me is that despite the level of investment in low-tech and high-tech methods of separating Black families is that we're still here. We still have kinship. We still take in our neighbor's kids. We still got aunties and cousins, and we still know where we came from. And there might be problems. Like, I'm not, I'm not saying that there isn't issues with substance abuse or domestic violence or poverty or this and that. But at the end of the day, like the fact that there is still a sense of family, a sense of family that might be different than the two parent home that we're supposed to be like heteronormative, like thing that we're supposed to be celebrating, which really hasn't been like the default for any culture, you know, throughout history. Yeah. Um, So I might not look like that, you know, leave it to beaver type stuff, but We do have a sense of family that has been preserved. And a lot of times what you'll see is even kids that whose parental rights have been, um, whose rights, their parents' rights have been terminated to them, ultimately return voluntarily and seek out their family. Um, And so despite this level of violence, we, we continue. And so to me, that's hopeful because 400 years plus and we're still here. Yeah, I, I, there was a really good book about that. It was called it's by Herbert Gutman. I forgot what I forgot what the name of the book. Oh, I think it was the Black Family and Slavery and Freedom. But he talks about how when um, Black families went free, like fathers and and mothers would go to these insane lengths to find children and wives and husbands and whatever that were separated from them. Like like they would go on foot across like multiple states, just just walking across states. Plantation, plantations, asking questions to find out where their wife ended up or where their kid ended up. You know, it was. It was I mean, what you said was was remind me of that book about uh, how how much black families um, survived or were willing to go through to remain intact in the face of a whole bunch of forces that were doing everything they could to um, break them apart in the kinship and all those things. It remind remind me of that book. Yeah, and still now. I mean, it's still now, right? Like when people, at least if you're, if you're like loved one gets locked up in like city prison, like you could still locate them, right? But for a lot of people who get arrested under federal charges, you know, they might place you and they don't inform the family, like which particular center they're in. Like people are still having to track down their family members. But yeah, I always think about Harriet Tubman is super gangster. Like this is crazy. Lady had epilepsy, what seems like epilepsy seizures, something. And she escaped from this horrific form of chattel slavery and then returned multiple times. Times, like tracking down family members, no Google Maps, like gang, like that's what gives me hope. Like despite yeah. everything, and, and you know the, the tragedy is that we still have to be fighting that fight and these new forms of slavery. But 
you know, what gives me hope is that people be finding a way against all odds. And there's some stats. You know, it's kind of weird. There's things that you kind of intuitively know, but when you see it laid out, kind of like how you said the heat map thing, there's things when you see it laid out, it's still like it's even worse than you thought, especially to see it written down. And and when you said that ACS removes an average of like, uh, at the time of the article at least, 230 plus children from families uh, monthly, and 94% of them are no, are non-white. Like that's that's really nuts. Like 94%. Yeah, it's huge. I mean, New York City is interesting because there's actually the only other comparison that I can make to that kind of like racial makeup is in North and South Dakota, where the numbers are pretty parallel in terms of indigenous children. Uh, but nowhere else is it like it's, it's pretty clearly defined in class. Um, like the pilot program for predictive analytics in the U.S. was in Allegheny, Pennsylvania. And so they were pre- predominantly low income children. Black children were uh, disproportionately represented. But per like raw numbers, there was more white children. And this is what we see when like in human services or welfare more generally. But New York is very specific. And that is almost exclusively black and some Hispanic. And then like Hispanic is not really a racial category. So it's unclear of like, were they black Hispanic? Like, you know, did they just yeah. Spanish? Like we, we don't know. Um, but then also ACS also operates detention centers. And so they've always operated detention centers, but due to the raise the age law at Rikers, where you can no longer incarcerate um, 16 to 17 year olds in the adult f- Rikers facility, uh, they were sent then to juvenile detention centers ran by the Administration of Children's Services. And so ACS does many things. Like in addition to removals, they're also constantly investigating people. They run detention centers and they have many different types of detention centers. They used to run um, uh, pre- preschool and early childhood centers. Now the DOE does that. That. However, they still have ACS daycare, so they have a lot of different facets to how they <clears throat> to how they operate. Like I'm used to that stat that you said, where that type of stat that you mentioned, where it's usually okay, it's uh, majority white, just because white people have uh, most of the population, but it's disproportionately uh, black. You know, so I thought this was going to be the same way that it would probably be like a plurality of white kids, but the black kids would be disproportionate to you know their amount in the population. I wasn't expecting them to be like a super majority of of actual 94%, uh, like in terms of raw numbers, not just disproportionate to population. And that was uh, pretty shocking. But you're saying in the rest of the country, that is how it is, where it's usually mostly white, but the black people are disproportionately uh, represented. So you're saying New York is actually unique, even by American standards, American city standards. Yeah, there's some regional differences. So the the data that I'm most familiar with is New York, but I do also look at federal data. That said, it's like there's a lot of issues with data. So, you know, the data that, you know, it's kind of like when people are looking at the COVID-19 rates of transmission at Rikers, you're looking at Department of Correction data. So, you know, with that like caveat that it's unclear. So they're not, you know, they're mandated due to this local law 11 to publish their data, but it's unclear like how accurate any of this is. I, You know, my... Hypothesis is that there's less poor white people in New York and you kind of need someone to be marginalized. Like, I don't even think this 94 percent that's that's not white. Like, I don't think this is just a, a lot of like middle class black people in here either. The way that ACS operates, first of all, say somebody makes a call and they say, you know, you slap your kid in the face and they're worried there's abuse. When they come in, they're strip searching every child that's in your house whether it's the child named in the investigation or not. No attorney is appointed to you. No Miranda rights are read. You know, like, it, they, it's pretty strategic that they would target target people who have very little resources in order to advocate for themselves. And the few times they have, like, say, somebody like me, and there's other people that have gone public, like Joyce McMillan, Angeline um, Tobin, 
you know, they go to the media. It's like a huge thing. But the way they operate is so in your face, horrible, horrible that, you know, I, I think they are, are pretty specific in which neighborhoods they're going to target and which types of families within those neighborhoods. And what's interesting was how the level to which you said schools play a role in this, because you're like uh, from June to September, uh, these uh, reports and initiated investigations stop. And, I mean, they, they drop greatly, and it's because um, school's out. So so basically, uh, schools are schools are the ones initiating this stuff the most. But at the same time, uh, there's schools in white neighborhoods, too. And places like Staten Island, you point out, is like ground zero, the opioid epidemic. But we don't really see all these cases of schools um, initiating all these problems in, in Staten Island. So I, I find that pretty interesting. Yeah, so education personnel in, in, in New York City and, and a lot in other places, but like I said, like my expertise is more so in New York City, are the number one professional cohort initiate, initiating um, neglect or child maltreatment investigations. And so it's to the point that I my hypothesis is that you could even narrow it down to a few schools. Like the dream situation, like at this point in the ACS, like uh, abolitionist movement, is that you have something similar to the NYCLU lawsuit against the NYPD that mandated them to fill out those cards for stop and frisk, where they had to chart like exactly what was the race of the person that they stopped, like how intrusive was the search, did they go through their pockets, did they strip search them, et cetera. There's no equivalent right now for that for children's services. Um, but I feel like if you could accomplish something like that, you'd be able to narrow it down to a couple of schools. There's also, you talk about notice of existence, which was um, stuff I didn't know about. Um, if you can describe what a notice of existence is about. Oh, yeah. So there's really, you know, like, obviously, there's a lot of issues with criminal investigations, but there's none of the, like, basic guardrails that we associate with, you know, the beginning of Law and Order, where you hear the dun-dun, and they're like, you know, a lawyer, basically your Miranda rights. There's no equivalent to that. And so when a, when a child maltreatment investigation is initiated, say, like I said before, like, the accusation is that you slapped your child in the face. That allegation is not what's investigated. So they might ask you, did you slap your child in the face? And once that's established that it didn't happen, the investigation continues and it's then a question of like your your general character so their standard protocol is after they come into your house they'll bring in two people within 24 hours of the call one person will speak to you nicely the other person is actually not usually a bad cop they'll be walking around looking around the house for evidence um, and then within 24 hours of that they'll start interviewing all of your neighbors they'll interview the kids at school without you present and also without an attorney present like what other what other agency can interview a, a minor child um, with no other adult present. Um, and so it's not the initial allegation that's ever investigated. They're just trying to see whether there was some evidence of neglect or abuse. And so you're never considered innocent or guilty. You're always under, like, uh, considered to be perpetuating harm. And then the case is either substantiated or, uh, what's the other one that they had? Substantiated, uh, sorry, indicated or unsubstantiated. And so, there, but you can never be rendered innocent. And so they say that that case is no longer in your file, but then if they investigate you again, it's reopened and that previous case is considered. And what was interesting was like, it was kind of Orwellian how, how they put it. Cause you know, uh, you point out that there's two outcomes, but the two outcomes are evidence was found. So they found evidence or 
you know, they don't say you're clear or innocent. Like you said, uh, the other term they use, I thought this was an interesting term, unfounded evidence was not found. So it's kind of this weird Orwellian double negative. Like, what, what does that mean? Like, you know, so evidence is found or unfounded evidence was not found, which when you read that, you know, casually, you don't, you don't even know what that means. Does it mean you're innocent, you know, or... You know, it's, it's it's a yeah, but it's kind of like a double bind. You're not really. It reminds me of like um, uh, like Senator. Kafka. When did you stop beating? Yeah, exactly. Very Kafka, like you know, or S- Senator. When did you stop beating your wife? It's it's uh, you kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't. Once it starts, and uh, East New York and Brownsville were uh, pretty crazy. And I'm not surprised the extent to which they led. But um, you said Brownsville, half of children under 18 have been investigated by ACS in their uh, lifetime. And what is usually the result of half of them being investigated? Like, do a lot of them end up um, getting into the system? Is it just like a lot of them just end up getting a visit? And I mean, either way, it's traumatizing. There's, there's no good outcome. But I was wondering if you can kind of contextualize that already horrifying um, stat a little bit further. I mean, so as far as children who get removed, children who were removed, I mean, that I had kind of earlier alluded to there was this lawsuit. Um, I don't have the date in front of me. I'm going to say it now. It was like three years ago that was initiated by Letitia James, who at the time was the public advocate and this organization called A Better Childhood. It was a class action lawsuit. And there was 11 named plaintiffs uh, of kids who were in New York City foster care. And kind of what they state in there is that children who are placed into foster care are two and a half times more likely to be seriously injured or murdered while in care um, compared to uh, their biological families, even controlling for uh, being of low socioeconomic status and if the parents had substance use disorder. So, I mean, that's like a pretty horrifying statistic. It's very standard to hear, like, you know, if you think back, the stories don't stay that long in the news, but I don't know if you remember, but there was this dude in Long Island and he was a foster parent of... Um, like difficult boys or something. And he had like hundreds of boys come through his house. And then finally they found out that he raped like half of them um, and like did all these terrible things. It's like a very common story in foster care. And so this is a really, really outrageously terrible system. And it's, you know, unsurprising that a system that is demanding children's strip search with no like legal representative, the moment they just come into contact at the time of the call, that kids who end up in care are disproportionately represented in prison and sex trafficking, et cetera. That said, even that data has missing data sets, right? And those are the kids who are who go who are removed and then placed into care. For the kids who are just under investigation or placed into preventative services, we really don't have enough of the data. And ACS historically is not really responsive to FOIA requests. Um, there's somebody, is this ProPublica? To look it up. His name is Joe Quinn Sapien, uh, uh, a journalist who wrote a piece about uh, ACS refusing to answer FOIA requests. There's so much that we don't know. A lot of their operations are unseen. You can kind of piece it together by different city records online, publicizes, publicizes their contracts. But like I keep going back to the comparison to the cops, like the cops have cops that speak out or, you know, record like that there's quotas like ACS clearly has a quota. You can't consistently remove like around 200 kids a month and not have a quota. Like clearly they have a quota, right? Um, But there have been no ACS workers that come out and like speak out. It's like a very, um, even beyond like the thin blue line thing. And you know what's interesting too is um, that that strip search thing is kind of crazy because it's not like there's a lot of warrants due process that has to happen before it reaches the strip search uh, phase from what you were saying um, in the article, it's like uh, it was in a different article you had called "More Cops for Kids." You talk about how the caseworker can knock on your door even late at night, you know. So um, 
if you don't open it, the caseworker can go, come back with the police. But then the caseworker can tell you without any warning, you know they were coming or whatever. The caseworker can show up late at night. You're sitting at home doing whatever, not expecting this. The caseworker comes, knocks on your door, and then uh, tells you you're being investigated for abusing and neglecting your children. Then tell you to wake them up and tell them to take their clothes off so they can check their their bodies, you know? And I was like, that's uh, not to be hyperbolic, but that's a lot like slavery. Like, you know, the, the idea that uh, the master, the overseer can just come to the slave quarters and just um, do whatever they want with your family or your kids. They can, uh, like, it, it kind of shows how a lot of this stuff is kind of psychologically ingrained and natural, I think, in, like, if this happened widespread, to enough white families, this would change overnight. Is, is what is what I'm saying. Like I think there's a reason why 94% of the people this happens to is black. I think to a certain degree, people know that they can't do this to um, white people, or there's gonna be this type of violation will be over uh, overnight. Yeah, no, this is an extremely traumatic process. I mean, it's hard to like underline. Like, you know, like I said, it's incredible to see the strength of a black family when you look at all the ways like the society has systematically tried to separate them, right? But what better way to hurt a woman than to try to remove her children from them and and fathers, right? Like, what better way to hurt someone than to sever those bonds? And not just from the family, but from the community, like all of their friends, like any kind of familiar person. And this is like traumatic, like development mentally, like, regardless of the stage, whether it's you're a child who's so young, you don't even have the words to label the situation, whether you're a teenager, and this means that you lost all of your social support, you know, you're now living with these strange people, don't have contact to your relatives, they might not even pay for your phone, you know, you have no way of keeping in contact with your friends. But also the other thing is that because this is so traumatizing, calling ACS is also a weapon. And this is a very, like, well-known documented fact that, like, people who are um, domestically violent or, you know, dealing with intimate partner violence, like, whether it's the husband or the wife or whatever, like, you know, partner, will use calling ACS as a weapon against a parent. And so even if, though, this has been previously documented, like, this person has been arrested for domestic violence or something, and they call the following day, ACS will say that we are mandated to follow up on that investigation and restart the process. So people can be under perpetual surveillance or perpetual calls, even when everybody knows that it's just a vengeful call. And so there's so many layers to this, because also the ridiculousness of the strip searching on among all these other things that we just stated, is that these are not trained medical professionals. These are often people with associate's degrees from some city college on human services. Like, I'm not even clear what that curriculum covers, but they're not medical professionals. So they cannot, they're not able, it's one thing if a kid is like badly burned or, you know, covered in wounds, but like generally they wouldn't be able to distinguish like what is eczema versus what is an autoimmune condition or, you know, they have no child psychology degree. They have no idea how to make this develop mentally appropriate. And like you said, like the similarity to slavery is that kids might strip when they go to get a physical at the doctor's office. But that environmental setting, you know, it socializes them to expect that in this particular situation. But this isn't coming into their bed, waking them from their sleep. People out here complain about firecrackers. But in neighborhoods like Brownsville, like ACS is going off, you know, more nice than firecrackers. Uh, is David Hansel still the commissioner of ACS? I know he was at the time that you wrote the article. Yes, he's still the commissioner of ACS. 
Yeah, um, one thing about David Hansel I found interesting, this is something that uh, makes your makes this feel even more uh, tied into the general police abolition movement is, um, I didn't realize the extent to which um, they work with the NYPD, the NYPD, but also that David Hansel wanted, uh, I guess, to even make this even more, right? Like, he wanted to increase the NYPD's involvement in this, in this system. Uh, is that correct? Did I understand that correctly? Well, so it's a combination of David Hansel, and like I mentioned before, was that so that lawsuit was against ACS and OCFS. OCFS is Office for Children and Family Services, is the state body that 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 oversees the city child welfare system, and so OCFS settled in that lawsuit, and so and then ACS refused to settle. So what happened was that OCFS agreed to appoint an independent monitor to ACS. That monitor was Kroll. And so one year after that appointment, and it's worth noting here that Kroll, I think it was, was a CBS? No, I think NBC broke the story that Kroll was paid 450 to 550 an hour on an open contract to be this independent monitor when multiple nonprofits offered to be the independent monitor for free. And so November 2017, um, Kroll releases his report making several recommendations. And one of those recommendations in there was uh, to, to one, uh, to increase investment into independent consultants, investigative consultants or ICs. ICs are basically uh, former or current NYPD officers that are working for the Administration of Children's Services and are going to be like a first line of defense when there's an invest- there's an allegation of serious abuse or neglect. So something, like I said, the majority of um, allegations, first of all, are not substantiated, but are for things like po- poverty related, like not enough food, like not new enough clothes, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but for the few that are, you know, the child was like burned, raped or, you know, brutally beaten, that the police would be involved. And so they also have something where it's like a, a training academy where ACS and NYPD would be training together. And then the third component is that Kroll strongly recommended and, uh, and praised ACS for using data driven predictive analytics. And so the biggest change that they they suggested should be made is an augmenting of the memorandums of understanding between ACS and NYPD. And what that means is that ACS typically would not have access, like say, if they were conducting an investigation to the parents or the adults in the homes, like police record, criminal record, um, and the same for vice versa. But they were saying that, you know, they should be able to share information across these different data sets. Um, and so, you know, understanding like what's happening with predictive analytics, with the police and with David Hansel, it's important to see how like, yeah, he's terrible, but he's very much aligned with this report. And he also, his job previous to becoming the ACS commissioner was working for KPMG. So it's not surprising that like two global private firms would find alignment. Yeah, and so many things, and this is what I think uh, really shows what you were talking about before, about how you're saying a lot of your interests seem disparate there's a lot more overlap than is readily obvious because, you know, a lot of your um, tech and data and um, surveillance stuff really does tie into into this stuff. You talk about things like this guy, Brian, like like you talked about those um, predictive data things that they're bringing into, into play. Um, in one of your articles, you talk about um, alert media and uh, Brian, Brian Groover. And you talk about something called... Uh, child stat. I wasn't sure what child stat uh, was, but 
I mean, and basically the the, te- the technology stuff is pretty interesting. I want to hear you talk about alert media and and child stat and any other technology you think. Um, and of course, a lot of it's for profit too. Like like you point out, this is not like uh, people are, are making big bank off of off of selling these so called solutions as well. Yeah. So, I mean, that uh, essentially like my interest in data and tech policy and like privacy and surveillance, like it all it all comes from trying to understand these systems that immediately impacted my life and my community. Um, And so like how you were saying earlier about like academic jargon is that a lot of this stuff becomes so decontextualized and so obfuscated that people have no idea what you're talking about. But at the end of the day, it's these same old slavery level systems just exacerbated and accelerated by these new technologies. Um, The piece about Alert Media, um, about Alert Media, I think it was called like More Cops for Kids. Um, That was really referring to one of the contracts that came out from ACS shortly after that Kroll report. And, you know, like that particular technology, I believe it was um, the ACS workers were given these smartphones and they could pull a little... uh, some kind of little string from their phone that would then alert the police to their GPS location. And it had like three categories that would like rate the level of risk. So the police knew how to respond. And this just kind of highlights the idiocy of the situation. First of all, the thing is expensive. Number two, like, you know, GPS locations are not that precise in an apartment complex. Like it's one thing to do it like in a suburban or rural area where you just need to know the block, but it can't tell you an apartment. So it's like also makes no sense in the context of New York City. Um, So there's a lot of things ridiculous about that. As far as child stat, like the important thing to know is that that comes from um, uh, Bratton. And so he originally came up with CompStat and this whole idea of policing as an information science business, um, which is the name of an article by Ingrid Burrington and Urban Omnibus that really um, explicates this further. But basically child stat, home stat. Uh, there's other ones, but basically all all these different city agencies mimicked that model of CompStat, where you would be inputting all of this data and be predicting like where would be the new crime spots. So ChildStat is like a similar idea that you input all these different risk factors and like previous cases into this computerized system and that it will provide you like all of this additional data to assess like where you need to invest more child welfare resources, et cetera. And so, um, I'm sorry, I forgot your original question. Oh, no, I was just asking you to talk about the, the child stat and the contracts and people getting, I, I think you pretty much hit on everything. I, I can't think of anything that, that you, um, that, that, that you missed. I mean, um, I mean the fact that they work with active NYPD officers and, even former law enforcement gets hired as the the IC. You know, I mean, it makes sense why you're so involved in this um, police abolition movement too. But one thing I find interesting is a lot of the talk about police abolition kind of is very stuck on the the level of uh, adult police brutality. Like, like, do you find that it's um, do you find like the police abolition movement is talking about the child welfare abolition enough or that there's enough awareness of the, the sheer scope of what's at stake with the police's role in brutalizing um, communities? Or is it, just a, is it just a mainstream discussion at the uh, media and news level that is kind of too narrow? Because, you know, you can't really trust what's going on on the ground by how the media is framing it. I was, I was kind of wondering how you feel like the different movements are actually working on the ground as far as uh, the child welfare abolition and the police... Well, I'm excited. Like I think about two, it was like 
June 21st, I want to say. I think there was a Black Families Matter protest um, in downtown Brooklyn. And I think there was another one recently. So you know what? Like, maybe things are changing now. But overwhelmingly, like, no, people are not talking about it enough. And, you know, like I said, it's hard because the media doesn't necessarily reflect everything that's happening on the ground. And so... I don't, you know, I can, I'm generally only aware of what's happening in my immediate surroundings, but as somebody who's deeply interested in this, you know, there's nowhere near enough conversation about it. And I think there's multiple reasons, some of which I alluded to before, but also it's like, it's a lot of shame. You know, it's a lot of shame in these communities. Like a lot of people wonder, well, like maybe we are just like, we have a fucked up culture. Maybe we don't know how to raise our kids. Like everybody I know been investigated by ACS. White people don't never have these problems. Like we don't know how to act. Maybe we acted better. Like they wouldn't always be coming around here. And so, you know, in the absence of like a structural analysis of like this carceral continuum, I can see how people internalize it as personal failure. And so that's why I'm really like interested in researching and like digging up and connecting all these dots. Because if you don't see how those dots are connected, you might just think that it's something wrong with your family, that you're like third generation involved in the child welfare system and not realize how they've invested like billions of dollars over years to figure out how to like systematically and scientifically like excise all of your relationships. And, and, and there's people who are banking on this stuff to make money, like it's in their interest not to solve these things, but to keep the pathology, I mean, to, to keep the situations pathologized because the money's in the solutions. I mean, I said the, the money's in the um, treatments, not really in the in in, sol- in solving it, you know, because because I think in one of your articles, you had a quote from somebody saying, unfortunately, I can't remember who it was from, but somebody saying like, these are the kind of children that, that we need, you know, because... Um, oh, that was, I think that was somebody from Cayuga, because that was during the uh, yeah, that, separation that of it. children at the border. So, yeah. So, I, uh, you know, a lot of these, a lot of other child what welfare it, abolitionists were aware of who these actors were who were then getting the money for kids at the border. But go ahead. Sorry. Uh, uh, who was Cayuga, by the way? Cayuga is a name, it's not a person. Cayuga is a name of um, one of the child welfare organizations that received a contract to uh, take uh, kids who were separated at the border. There was a couple of different agencies, federal agencies involved. That's why I'm like stumbling over that because I one was yeah, like refugee yeah. and settlement. Um, but yeah, go ahead. So, so, so Cayuga was saying that that these are the kind of kids like they need as far as uh, to make their model work. Yeah, because it's like an ever shifting terrain. So it's like they're always, you know, the big thing that's important to point out about New York City is not just like the specificity of like the majority of the kids being black. But the other big thing is that the foster care census was at its height around 1994, 1996. Um, And right now we have less than 8,000 kids. I want to say around that time it was around 45,000 kids. And so the the rate of, of children being removed into foster care, particularly with the opioid epidemic in the rest of the country has increased. So New York City has been like heralding, like, look, we, we have so many less kids in foster care. And initially that seems like a good thing. And it's still way too many. 8,000 kids. That's a lot of kids that's not living with their family members. But the important thing is if you take a closer look at that data, you see that there's about over 45,000 children enrolled in this thing called preventative services. And then you see these these other kids that are in these detention centers. And then you start to get a better sense. You know, and a lot of kids are are revolving in and out of this door. So maybe they're just removed for like a month or two. You know, it's not clear where they are reflected in the data. And so the expanse is huge. Um, But they're always, you know, like capitalism needs more and more and more to expand. So they're always looking for like new sources 
of children. And they want sources of children that are not um, coming from families with the resources and the means in order to contest their power. And so immigrant kids who have no like citizen family to advocate on their behalf are perfect. And uh, one of the last things I want to talk about was just the two detention centers in Mott Haven and in the Bronx, for people people don't know, and Brownsville, uh, which is in Brooklyn. But yeah, um, well, first of all, the fact that they're 99.1% Black and Hispanic, but um, if you can just in general, like, just, just talk about that. I mean, I'm leaving this as an open-ended question because there's a lot to talk about there. But um, yeah, if you can just talk about what's been going on with them and what the situation is, the abuses, both financially and physically, et cetera. Sure. I mean, that's almost its own episode. I guess the one big thing that I would say is that Horizon um, in the Bronx and Crossroads in Brooklyn are the only two secure detention centers that are identified as ran by the ACS. However, they run many other so-called unsecure detention centers all throughout the city in this decentralized network of houses that will have bars on them and are operated sensibly as prisons. Um, But you wouldn't necessarily know that they're prisons in the same way unless you went right up to their door and you noticed like there was like bars on the windows. Um, And those kids will attend like neighborhood, like community schools and stuff. Um, And the big thing, and I think I linked to in that article, ACS's Domestic Ice about... uh, about Horizon is that they had like a correctional officer who was investigated twice for not just like like raping children for 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 favors and all this stuff. I mean like the stuff like this how ACS operates, they have to target like the most poor and most vulnerable people because the stuff that they do is just so callous and unrepenting. And just the conditions are terrible. And COVID has really revealed the seams of all of these systems, right? And so when even Rikers was making moves to release uh, more of its inmates due to COVID-19, a lot of the, um, it, the both of the ACS detention centers were reticent to do so. And so they um, had many of the children and their families ultimately uh, 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 tra- uh, become infected with COVID-19. And so that's like another tragedy. But I think the most important thing to know is just that this so-called child welfare system operates literal prisons for children. And there's children as young as 11 that are documented as being in these facilities. And so we're talking about incredible brutality. And like, what do they go on to do? I mean, this really ruins people's lives and then prepares them to enter prison, sex trafficking, like all types of terrible things. The last thing, though, I forgot to say earlier that I wanted to mention now about the teachers and about COVID-19. You don't have to you don't have to rush. You have the time. (laughs) No, also, my son is here. Like, are you going to come? Oh, no, no problem, no problem. No, I got a lot of kids. Um, But what I wanted to say is that... um, Oh, so because teachers are, because public schools are the largest professional cohort initiating child welfare investigations, when there was uh, the shelter in place order, there was all this stuff about like, oh no, all these kids are going to be abused because we're not monitoring and surveilling them. And like, this is like the racist narrative of like, can, can black families not raise their own kids? Like now in the absence of having these white teachers monitoring their every move and like starting ACS investigations, all of a sudden the kids are going to get beaten. And like the, the story that we've been hearing from a lot of families is how grateful they are to have this time to just have space away from these people who are constantly calling the cops and calling ACS on them. And so the crazy terribleness of ACS is that, you know, some families didn't have um, iPads 
for their kids to participate in the virtual schooling. And the Department of Education said, you know, this is non-judgmental. If you don't have any equipment for your kids to access the virtual schooling, please contact us and we'll give you tablets. And so parents requested tablets and ACS came to their door. There was a big article about this. And so these people are unrepentant. Whew, that's that's something. I mean, bef- before we go, do you have any last uh, things that we didn't talk about that you want people to know or any last things you want people to check out? I mean, we, uh, you mentioned uh, your podcast, but in case there was anything else or just any other information about this topic that you feel like we didn't uh, get to touch on, by all means, uh, let us hear it before you go. Oh, yeah. Please check out the We Be Imagining podcast. We're available on all major platforms. We also have a show called Black Simon Radio uh, that plays on WKCR 89.9 FM Mondays, Thursdays and Fridays from 9 to 10. Uh, But in general about child welfare, like if you haven't been familiar with the system, just like start doing your own research. I know you mentioned the new Jane Crow. Uh, There was also around that time a piece in The New Yorker called When Should Children Be Removed from Their When Should Children Be Removed from Their Parents? And yeah, there's a lot of people fighting this fight. Like ACS publicizes their data. Like you can look at this, check out my article, ACS is Domestic Ice. You know, the biggest, I guess the biggest thing that also people should know is that, you know, maybe this is the cynical part of me, but this is terrible what's happening to the black community. But what you should know is like Philip Alston, who is the UNHCR um, special rapporteur who wrote the the Human Rights Report, uh, I think 2018 on the U.S. And he had this one section about predictive analytics where he's talking about the coordinated housing entry in L.A. And he says, um, you know, what people fail to realize in America is that poor marginalized people are the testing grounds for the worst forms of surveillance prior to it being generalized to the rest of the society. And so, like I was saying, most of the data that I look at is local to New York City. But when I'm looking at the federal data, I've seen over the last couple of years an increase federally um, of child welfare investigations overall. And so this is something that terrible that they've been perfecting among poor people, black people, indigenous people for decades and for centuries. Right. But this is affecting more and more white people, more and more middle class people. Um and so tur- ignoring it or turning away is not going to save you. Like, we are really, you know, with all the problems with loose, but like we are in a society of control. So this is definitely something people should make themselves aware of. Uh, well put. And uh, thanks so much for joining us, Khadija. It took a long time to happen, but it was well worth it. For sure. For sure. And I know you have to go take care of your kids. <laughs> I know your son, your son is around. So uh, it's a good place to end it off. But yeah, thanks again. You're always welcome back if you want to... Um, ever plug anything or talk about something that you have by all means come back and everyone check out her podcast and keep an eye out for anything that she writes for sure and with that uh, have a good night and hope your kids have a good night too and everyone out there be good thank you this is dope